FDA has authorized emergency use of the first antibody drug to help the immune system fight COVID-19. The drug from Eli Lilly is cleared for people 12 years old and older with a mild or moderate case of coronavirus. The government previously struck a $375 million deal for 300,000 vials of the treatment. It will be provided to patients at no cost. First of all, we saw that the antibody, bamlanivimab, was able to decrease viral load. We've also done experiments with bamlanivimab in combination with a, another antibody, and that um, sh also shows a robust reduction of viral loads. But most importantly, we showed that um, the single antibody alone or the combination could reduce the level of symptoms in the patients. And I think the really pleasant surprise from this first trial was um, we really saw a reduction in the rates of hospitalizations. Welcome to our podcast about biotechnology breakthroughs, the DNA of all living things, and the DNA of scientists, companies, and patients who make miracles happen. I'm Dr. Michelle McMurray-Heath, and you're listening to I Am Bio. For more than 10 months in this pandemic, the only COVID treatments talked about at length were hydroxychloroquine, which didn't work, and remdesivir, which wasn't created to fight COVID, although it has helped some patients battle off the virus. What you may not know is that there are more than 580 COVID treatments and antivirals in development, including many in late-stage clinical trials. So we've been waiting and hoping and masking because the ability to beat and treat COVID is no small thing. In fact, it's the next best thing to preventing it in the first place. The wait for new treatments is now over. This month, the FDA granted emergency use authorization to not one, but two different Eli Lilly therapies to help patients with different stages of COVID disease. When it comes to antibodies, the media has really focused on which vaccine candidates can stimulate the immune response to produce large quantities of these infection-fighting proteins on its own. But what if biopharma scientists could create highly potent, neutralizing antibodies in the lab and then infuse them into COVID patients? That's the science behind Lilly's first treatment to get the FDA's okay this month to treat mild to moderate cases of COVID. If administered early, in the days following infection, the Lilly antibody infusion can be a real COVID killer. But what about those with serious disease who are experiencing breathing difficulties? The patients on oxygen and ventilators? Well, there's more good news there. Lilly's second treatment, granted emergency authorization this month, will be used in combination with remdesivir to help patients with serious disease who are experiencing respiratory distress. Knowing that treatments are coming does make the prospect of catching COVID a little less terrifying. The sooner we can reliably beat back COVID with the right medication taken at the right time, the sooner we'll get our open society and our economy back. We will vaccinate the country and the world, but it's going to take time and it's not going to be easy. But in the meantime, it's mission critical that the biotech industry do everything in our power to innovate new medicines that can overpower this virus. We talk a lot about vaccines on this podcast, but today we're going to talk about treatments. 
two powerful new weapons to help COVID patients get better. Today's guest is AJ Narula. He's Vice President of Immunology for Lilly Research Laboratories in San Diego, where he oversees Lilly's discovery research and early phase clinical development in immunology. AJ has a distinguished record of leadership at biotech powerhouses like Amgen and Biogen, working on treatments for serious diseases ranging from MS to lupus to rheumatoid arthritis. Back in 2015, AJ accepted a new leadership challenge at Eli Lilly, a venerated 145-year-old company that was the first to deliver the polio vaccine, penicillin, and insulin to the masses. And now Lilly has done it again, only this time in the COVID fight. Thanks for making the time, AJ, and welcome to I Am Bio. Thanks so much for having me today. So before we talk about Lily's double dose of hopeful news on the COVID treatment front, I want our listeners to learn a little bit about you. I understand you've been doubly busy these last eight months with four kids and all kinds of homeschooling going on. How have you pulled that off while simultaneously helping to deliver not one, but two game-changing treatments for COVID? Well, it's been a, quite an adventure, and, I, and it's certainly not been uh, me by myself. My wife is a uh, uh, borne the brunt of the load there. But it's been a fun experience as I've been um, in my home office uh, working through the development of some of these medicines. Um, you know, even though we have a couple of thick walls between us, um, every now and again, um, regulators and scientific leaders across the world can maybe hear, hear a glimpse of when my uh, daughter's uh, first grade class is not going so well. <laughs> so. <laughs> so are your kids' schools open, closed, virtual? What's going on for you so guys? So I've, I've got a couple of sons in college, and, and even though they're up at their campuses, um, either in apartments or in dorms, it's all virtual at this point. These are in California. So, similarly for my high school son, it's it's virtual um, and also for the first grader. So it's, it's just the way it is now, but uh, we mm -hmm. hope to get back to normal in the future. Well, I trust you have a, a safe and wonderful Thanksgiving with that with that one lovely family. Yeah, so thanks. in your loads of spare time, you also managed to be a dedicated sports nut. My my producer told me that Friday, November twenty seventh, marks the first time in what is it, thirty seven years that you won't be in the stands for the Berkeley Stanford college football game. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, that's a Cal yeah. Ripken I, level streak. <laughs> it's uh, my streak ends, even though there is some debate whether the streak really ends when it's not allowed by the law to attend. I think a lot of folks have longer streaks than me, so we're deliberating that now. So I know sports have been a godsend in the quarantine, but it's hard not to fret about the risks and wisdom of playing contact sports right now with vaccines and treatments so close at hand, with winters coming, cases are spiking. And we're at that moment right before we've stocked our nation's medicine cabinet to prevent and treat this virus. What do you think about how sports should be handled right now? Yeah, it's been a it's a very great good question. I mean, I think right now, um, um, you know, if you think about what the NBA did, that was I think a good example of how it could be done well in terms of having the games go on and maintaining safety. But, but that was a very unique situation where they were able to maintain a bubble. I think it's it's you know proving pretty tricky with with college football or for now, for example. And I think that's where I, I have the most concerns where these are not paid athletes and. Uh, you obviously want to avoid putting them at any risk, but of course they the the players want to play. So um, I think there've been different approaches across different parts of the country. But obviously, uh, 
you know, keeping, you know, keeping fans out of the stands is, is the prudent thing to do for now. And uh, I, th- I think what's nice is you see some of the, uh, some of the college football teams and conferences have really implemented pretty rigorous uh, testing and contact tracing measures. So I, I do see a lot of good things being done out there, but despite that, it's proving to be very challenging and you see a lot of the games affected with many players out at a given time. It's just a very tough time to do uh do sports that uh, involve a lot of players where there is physical contact. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's this is going to be a, such a challenging time looking back for so many areas of our lives. So Absolutely. Let's turn to the big news. Earlier this month, the FDA granted emergency use authorization for two different treatments Lilly brought forth to help patients with milder and more serious cases of COVID. This news couldn't have come at a better time in the United States. COVID is now killing about 1,500 Americans a day, giving us the dubious distinction of being the world's leader in COVID fatalities. In one 24-hour period last week, 188,000 Americans were infected. The first emergency authorization the FDA gave your company was for specially engineered antibodies that can neutralize and potentially prevent COVID disease in adults and children over 12. In the simplest terms, what is a neutralizing antibody? Right. So, so you know, our immune system is a very uh, complex uh, system that we, that's been developed over time, you know, to, to fight infections. Um, there are a couple of different arms of the immune system. And, and one of the most important um, arms is, is what we call the humoral immune system, where your body makes these very specialized proteins called antibodies that help fight infection. These antibodies can neutralize um, infectious pathogens like bacteria or viruses. Um, so a neutralizing antibody refers to an antibody um, that is capable of, of really dealing with a foreign pathogen. And the antibody therapy we've developed actually came from a patient that had recovered from COVID and, and with some really great collaboration um, with, with another company and with academia, we basically were able to purify one of the best neutralizing antibodies that this recovered COVID patient had made and then really make the antibody at a large scale where um, it ultimately be administered as a therapy. And again, an antibody will bind very specifically to a foreign pathogen um, like a virus and can allow that uh, infectious agent to be cleared from the body. Dr. Fauci himself said that he'd never seen a disease that manifests in so many different ways, from totally asymptomatic to respiratory failure to stroke and death. I imagine this made it even more difficult to work on effective treatments. Can you take us into the Lilly C-suite and explain how Lilly's senior leadership have viewed the treatment components of COVID-19? I'd like to take us back to the... um late February, early March timeframe, when it was really clear that we were in the midst of something very serious here, a global pandemic that was really starting to spread rapidly within the United States. There are companies who, a big part of what they do is make vaccines. Um, and, and Lilly, I, I think, felt at that time that those companies would be the ones to, to take that on that task. But Lilly is, a, you know, very good at making antibodies, which had the potential to play an important role in the pandemic. Um, we also have great immunology expertise in the company, and it was starting to really emerge that this uh, disease, COVID-19, in addition to being a viral illness, ha- had a significant immunologic component. So what we saw, sought to do was to 
use our ability to make antibodies to help develop an effective neutralizing antibody treatment, but also to look at uh, some of our immunologic therapies and see how they could be repurposed um, to, to help fight this disease. So, you know, one of the interesting things about COVID is it seems that different individuals respond very differently. And, you know, some of the studies I've seen have said that some people fail to mount this initial antibody response. What What is your research in this space taught us about how different people are responding with their natural antibodies to COVID? Yeah, no, it's it's a great question um, because because it definitely seems that there is a lot of heterogeneity in how people respond to the virus. I think what we're we're starting to understand, um, but we don't fully understand yet, is that there's definitely a correlation with with COVID nineteen between certain well established comorbidities and your ability to mount an immune response. So generally speaking, you know, when we think of young, healthy individuals. Um, even though they can become infected, they they will mount a robust immune response for the most part, and um, and do quite well with the virus. Some even you know remain asymptomatic. Um, we're starting to understand that there are comorbidities like being of advanced age, um, or having a high body mass index, or having a one of a list of conditions which include diabetes or other conditions that uh, impact the immune system that seem to compromise your immune system and your ability to mount a strong um, antiviral response. I think where we still have more work to do is to understand exactly where the deficits in the immune system are that are sort of predicted by some of these comorbidities. I think there's some early evidence. Um, you know, normally when we fight viruses, we have um, a strong what's called an interferon response, where there are cytokines called interferons that um, th- these proteins that the body normally makes to to help fight viral infections, those may be weak in some of the patients who ultimately, um, you know, really progress with COVID. Hmm. Fascinating. So your scientists were able to develop your antibody treatment in just three months with a, a, an assist from Dr. Fauci's shop at the National Institutes of Health. How did the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases help out? Yeah, no, it was a very nice uh, collaborative effort. It was, uh, uh, you know, essentially a case where we were identifying the best antibodies um, against the virus and then really doing some experiments to define which antibodies had the right properties to ultimately develop into a therapy in terms of their ability to neutralize virus in the test tube or Petri dish. Um, the antibody that we ended up uh, getting the emergency authorization for recently was um, narrowed down from several hundred antibodies that we were able to, to find from the recovered COVID patient. So what did the clinical trial data demonstrate about the safety and efficacy of your antibody? In general, the um, rates of hospitalization in patients who received placebo were on the order of about 6%, and we reduced the rates of hospitalization um, for patients who received the antibody to under 2%. So that was, uh, I think, the most important observation from the clinical trial and really served as the basis for the um, emergency authorization that was granted by the FDA in the United States and subsequently is being pursued in some other countries also. The neutralizing antibody that we received uh, emergency authorization for recently is called bamlanivimab. Um, and we've studied it in a number of different treatment settings, but the setting for which um, the emergency authorization was provided was in the outpatient or ambulatory setting. And this is, I think, where we, we believed the antibody had the best chance to work even before we started all the clinical trials. Because the goal here was to get to patients relatively early in illness, within a few days of the onset of symptoms, when the viral phase of the illness was very active, and to get the antibody um, 
onboard early and to try and reduce um, viral load. So, so we did do a trial with um, several hundred patients with relatively recent onset of symptoms of COVID-19. Um, generally, at the start of the trial, patients had had symptoms just under five days. So it was relatively early in the disease course. And we, we enrolled a broad population um, who met those criteria. Um, we ended up with a population where many of them, over half of them, had risk factors for progression to COVID-19. And, and we looked to show a few things in the trial that we could reduce the levels of the virus. And, and this was measured by um, doing one of those nasopharyngeal swabs that's, that anyone on who's listening who's had a COVID test may be familiar with, um, and, and doing a PCR to measure the levels of virus. So we measured the levels of virus. But we also looked at clinical endpoints, um, which include the symptoms of the patients. And, and we looked at important clinical endpoints, like the ability to prevent progression to severe disease. And we measured this by the ability to prevent hospitalizations or emergency room visits or even death. First of all, we saw that the antibody, um, bamlanivimab, was able to decrease viral load. We've also done experiments with bamlanivimab in combination with a another antibody that um, sh- also shows a robust reduction of viral loads. But most importantly, we showed that um, the single antibody alone or the combination could reduce the level of symptoms in the patients. And I think the really pleasant surprise from this first trial was we really saw a reduction in the rates of hospitalizations. For those in our listening audience who worry that the speed we've seen in response to COVID is an indication that perhaps things aren't tried and true, using antibodies is not a, a new treatment approach, is it not? I remember getting a gamma globulin shot while I waited for my, you know, my hepatitis vaccine to kick in when I was traveling overseas decades ago. This That's is right. this is an approach we've used for a while, is it not? That's correct. Uh, um, you know, administering external antibody, it's, it's a case of providing passive immunity. Ultimately, when you get um, exposed to an infectious pathogen, you ultimately develop your own immune response. Um, um, but as in the very good example you provided in the interim, until your body can mount its own re- response, providing an antibody from an external source is a way of providing that passive immunity to cover you until your body is able to mount its own immune response. So the antibody authorization for mild and moderate COVID was such an important moment in our industry's pandemic response. But sometimes when it rains, it pours. And that's a good thing in the COVID famine. On November 19th, just 10 days after your antibody got the green light from FDA, the FDA granted emergency use authorization for another Lilly treatment for COVID-19. Only this medicine is to be used in combination with remdesivir for those with more serious COVID disease, such as patients who require supplemental oxygen or mechanical ventilation. So now Lilly is manufacturing two key treatments, one for mild or moderate COVID and another that helps patients with more advanced COVID disease who are often struggling to breathe. It works differently in the human body than an antibody treatment. Can you tell our listeners how this therapy works and what your data showed when you mixed your treatment with remdesivir in the target population? I think we know that the biggest unmet needs um, at a patient level for this disease are for those who end up in the hospital very ill. Um, And, you know, what treatments can we provide there? Um, and, and this is a very exciting story uh, from Lily's perspective about how a um, existing therapy, baricitinib, which is an approved 
drug for rheumatoid arthritis, which is an inflammatory form of arthritis, um, was able to be repurposed to, for the treatment of COVID. It, it was actually a very interesting story where artificial intelligence was actually used to predict that baricitinib may be a good treatment for um, COVID-19. Um, the, the later inflammatory stage of disease is characterized by a lot of these inflammatory proteins or cytokines circulating and mediating disease. And baricitinib, the way it works in rheumatoid arthritis is to block the action of those inflammatory cytokines. So there was, there was some thinking that baricitinib could help here. So we entered into um, clinical trials, including collaborative clinical trials with the National Institute of Health to study the um, benefit, of, benefit of baricitinib in the more severe hospitalized patients who had more of this inflammatory disease. Now, you mentioned remdesivir. This is another important agent, an antiviral agent that had was tested early in the pandemic and showed benefit in improving um, the outcomes of patients in the hospital, you know, um, shortening the time to recovery in those patients. By the time baricitinib started their clinical trials, um, we already had data that remdesivir um, was efficacious. So the way the trial was done was that baricitinib was given in combination to, with remdesivir and compared to remdesivir alone. It showed additional benefit. So it was a, further able to short, shorten the recovery time for the patients. It was able to reduce the rates of patients progressing to mechanical ventilation or to death. Um, and then when you looked at overall mortality, you showed uh, there were strong trends in improvement for baricitinib. So it, it was a nice result. So you're making the good great there, right? Yeah, yeah. Able to potentiate each other's effects. So yep. let's let's shift gears a little and talk about the manufacturing scale up. You know, we've been on the phone with many governors across the country, and um, I think a question that's forefront in many of their minds is, you know, when will we receive these therapies? How much will there be available? So, what's the plan here in the United States to make these new COVID treatments more? widely available, and how many doses of each product is the federal government seeking to procure? I'll talk um, about the situation with the um, neutralizing antibody here, because with baricitinib, I think the emergency authorization is relatively recent, and some of those details are emerging. But for the neutralizing antibody, it's been a very nice uh, collaboration with the government and with, with Operation Warp Speed to help enable distribution of the antibody and ultimately, when the EUA was, was granted, um, the plan that was being worked on was, was started to be executed. Even in advance of having clinical data, you know, Lilly realized that the need was going to be very large um, globally for um, antibody therapy um, if, if we were able to generate um, evidence of efficacy. So we really started significant manufacturing um, activities at risk um, much earlier in the year so that we could have as much um, antibody was feasible by the time we um, granted an EUA and then subsequently you know, entered into other partnerships to optimize um, manufacturing. We should have a million doses of the antibody available by the end of this year. And then by next year, we'll be able to have quite a bit more um, drug available. But in the United States, again, we work closely with the government. Um, they have procured thus far 300,000 doses um, and are in the process of now distributing it across the country to the areas of uh, greatest need. So you use the term EUA for our listeners who may not have caught that abbreviation. It's emergency use authorization. And maybe you could speak a little bit to the distinction between FDA granting an emergency use authorization as opposed to an approval for a new drug. An emergency use authorization is, is not a traditional 
FDA approval. You know, it's it's a situation where there is an emergency situation in, in the country here um, with an infectious pathogen. And um, it's a pragmatic path the FDA has created that um, even though you may not have all the data that would serve as the basis for um, a traditional um, approval, you have a strong body of data that suggests that there could be benefit for a therapy. So that's generally the criteria for which an emergency use authorization is granted. So here in the United States, will most patients who become hospitalized with COVID be able to access your vital treatments once you've fully scaled up? Uh, You've cited at the beginning the large number of cases we're having every day. And um, at this point, our, our supply does not meet the demand. So again, we're working closely with the government and they're the ones who are determining the distribution plan. They're looking closely at their data from the Department of Health and Human Services to determine where the greatest need is and distributing what drug supply um, we have to the areas of greatest need. But again, we're we're trying to make more and more of the antibody therapy such that the gap between supply and demand gets decreased. One other quick comment I'll make about the emergency use authorization is, um, you know, what became evident from our clinical trials was that The patients who are doing poorly with COVID are the ones that we talked about a little earlier with risk factors like advanced age greater than 65 or a high body mass index or one of a list of several medical conditions. And it was clear to us as we applied for the emergency use authorization that those patients should have priority because they're the most likely to benefit from antibody treatment. So um, the emergency use authorization currently is prioritized for those who have some of those risk factors I've just mentioned. So we talked about prioritizing um, patients based on their profiles and their comorbidities, but how, if there's scarcity of supply, will the distribution be decided between states and facilities? That's something that, um, you know, in our partnership with the federal government, they are determining, and um, they are tapping into a Department of Health and Human Services database on the epidemiology of the disease, where is there the most disease and so forth. And so they've come up with a distribution plan that's driven by some of that data that will really tap into where where are the areas of greatest need. So most, but not all of the listeners of I Am Bio podcast are based here in the United States. And of course, Eli Lilly is truly a global company and we're living through a truly global pandemic. I understand you're also working with Amgen and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation using their therapeutics accelerator. The plan is to start commercial manufacturing in April for international distribution. What is Lilly doing with the Gates Foundation to help your life-saving treatments get to less developed nations? Yeah, no, thanks for the question. And this is something that's definitely near and dear to my heart. This is a global pandemic and we need to help, you know, ill patients around the world. And the Gates Foundation is really a great partner in, in in that regard in terms of just what they've done for global health in the past. So so we are partnering with them to to try and get the medication in uh, much of the less developed world, um, including areas like sub-Saharan Africa. The principle is um, to try and get to as many countries as we can and to make sure that uh, there are no costs for patients, um, you know, so sort of to, to uh, pursue pricing approaches that are tiered, that it's very realistic for governments of these less developed nations to really provide therapy broadly to their patients. Wonderful. So have you set goals for how many countries you'd like to reach with your COVID treatments? Yeah, I mean, these specifics are being worked out closely in collaboration with the Gates Foundation. But the goal is to you know 
to really get as broadly as we can where the need is. So I think, again, to look very carefully at the epidemiology of the pandemic globally, and we do, we do see a lot of, um, you know, uh, com- of the poorer countries of the world and some very populous countries like India, for example, that have really large number of COVID cases um, to, to really try and get, get as broadly as we can. I don't think there's necessarily an upper limit. I think if there is a major problem with COVID in some of the less developed countries in the world, we would like to get there in general. One final question. With Lily's work on treatment and Pfizer and Moderna's leading progress on vaccines, how do you think this pandemic will look in 2021 compared with 2020? Yeah, no, a really great question. And a really, um, really important last few weeks in the fight against the pandemic has been some of the very exciting emerging um, vaccine data from Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca just in the last few days. Um, um, And I think this gives us a lot of hope for the future that we will have effective vaccines. When you hear about some of the efficacy rates that are being reported from these vaccines of greater than 90%, I think it exceeds all expectations. And and really gives us a lot of hope. So I think what you're going to see in 2021 is, is, you know, things aren't going to be back to normal, though. We're going to see an evolution over the course of 2021, where we'll incorporate some of these scientific advances, which include um, the great breakthroughs in vaccines that we're starting to see evidence of, but also the important role that therapeutics will play, including some of the medications uh, we've, we've discussed. So, so I think the key goal with vaccines will be to, to start to distribute them broadly, to encourage people to take vaccines. There's obviously been some historical recent um, issues with some resistance to taking vaccines, but really to educate and encourage people to take vaccines so we could get broad societal or herd immunity against the virus. But in the meanwhile, I I think some of the therapeutic options we've created are going to be important. Um, the, The other point I'll make, though, that I think has been made by a lot of our esteemed public health leaders is I think our behavior is going to be very important or continue to be very important over the next year. So I think we've got to continue to be very rigorous in terms of taking the Um, protective measures against spreading the um, virus, which include continued use of face masks and limiting um, sizes of gatherings and so forth. So so in many ways, I hope that 2021, we can continue to see improvements um, in uh, and reduction in the rates of infection and death from the virus as the vaccines um, get administered. But our behavior needs to be modified and, and to prevent further spread of it. And hopefully by the latter half of 2021, we'll see a world that's starting to get back a little closer to what we're used to or what we were used to before the pandemic. Well, sage advice uh, and wisdom for 2021. Thank you so much for joining us, AJ. We really appreciate your wisdom and thank you for all of the amazing science that you're leading at Lilly and the hope that you're bringing to so many out there. Thank you so much for having me today. So that's all for today. Don't forget to subscribe on your podcast player of choice or even better, if you learned something useful today, please share a link to the I Am Bio pod with your family and friends. To learn more about the work of heroes and sheroes in lab coats, please visit iambio.org. On our next episode, I'll interview the leader of the Center for Disease Control and Prevention's work to finalize our national vaccine distribution strategy. Dr. Nancy Messonnet is the director of the CDC's National Center for Immunizations and Respiratory Diseases. I'll ask her timely questions relevant to your family's life about how we're going to beat this thing on next Monday's I Am Bio.